Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this Facebook Live and YouTube Live. It's really great to see you, although I can't actually see you, but it's great that you're here. <laughs> My name is Louisa Richards, and I volunteer on the pastoral team at Christchurch London. We really wanted to put on a seminar about um, how we cope with grief and loss, because it's something that so many of us are facing at the moment. So we wanted to put on something that could um, give you coping strategies and support as you walk through difficult times. So um, this recording will be available afterwards on YouTube if you want to share it with anyone. And also on YouTube, you can find a whole host of seminars that we've done already. So if you go to the Christchurch page on YouTube, there are seminars that we've done on sleep, on anxiety, on stress, on finding joy. And um, we'd really recommend that you check those out if you need additional support as well. Um, in addition to this, after this seminar, we're actually going to be running a grief and loss support group, which I'm going to be telling you about later on. And that starts on Wednesday. And so we're going to be running that for four weeks. But I will give you more information on that slightly later. There's also going to be a live Q&A after this interview. So if you have questions on anything to do with how we cope with um, loss or grief, bereavement, anything, then feel free to just post your question. Lydia on the team here who's going to send me your questions and then we can ask Will after the interview. Um, so Will van der Haar is the person that I'm interviewing today and Will is a very clever man. <laughs> he is a director of a mental health charity he, called Mind and Soul Foundation and he is also a vicar in Parsons Green. He's an executive coach, he has authored books, he is really fascinating to listen to. So I'm really excited that he is joining us this evening. Um, we actually recorded the video um, a couple of days ago, so we're going to turn to that in a minute. And just for fun, see if you can spot the intruder in the interview who will appear <laughs> in a few minutes' time. Hope you enjoy it and see you after. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me this evening. Um, well, grief and loss is a really big topic um, and it feels like we're in a time now where both collectively and some of us individually are really going through times of loss and grief. Can you share a bit about your perspective on this at the moment? Absolutely. I think one of the really important things to note is that people typically discount themselves from being uh, those who are experiencing grief and loss. So, so normally people's stories or their own experiences of grief and loss are always diminished and minimized. And um, particularly right now with the news feeds as they are, you know, Christians, you know, but, but everyone in society is sort of highly empathetic, looking towards other people who's ha who've had what we call catastrophic loss. So potentially they've lost loved ones uh, as a result of this COVID disease. That's really important, but it's also really important not to diminish the losses and bereavements, if you like, that we're having uh, with a small b or small l. Um, and they can be very, very significant right now. So the, you know, just the loss of your freedom is actually a significant loss. It, it's, if you like, a bereavement in and of itself. 
and because of the way particularly British society works, we we tend to um, bring these things into sort of poor perspective. And as a result, we can suffer uh, emotionally and uh, psychologically. So I, I frame grief and loss in terms of change rather than designating them specifically as as grief and bereavement, because those tend to be, if you like, the big ticket items that we believe are worthy of grieving. Um, actually, I think we need to grieve our losses as a daily practice, rather than just thinking that that's something we should engage with only when we lose someone you know, who, who, who's dear to us. That's really, yeah, that's really interesting thinking of it as change. Um, can you just say a bit more about what you mean by that? So um, J.H. Newman said that to live is to change. And, and I think that's really helpful to understand our, sort of our lives as a process of um, picking up the new and, if you like, letting go of the old. Now, it sounds very much like we're in control of that process. But actually, we're, we're, we're journeymen and women on, on a process of change, which means that often you know, we, we, we pick things up automatically. And actually, uh, we often have to put things down forcibly because they're taken from us. So the loss experience of change is very, is, is very dynamic. In fact, I'd say that there are, uh, there are different sorts of change. And, and again, understanding the way that change works in terms of the loss and grief cycle are really important. So the danger is if you're hearing me speak right now, you think I'm diminishing bereavement or I'm, I'm kind of making a really significant thing really small. But I, I think we, we need to grieve losses as a practice, um, you know, and some of those will be easy to grieve and some of those will be very, very difficult to, to grieve. But the key thing is that not all change is the same. So there, there are four sorts of change. I've adapted this from J.M. van Dyke, um, a psychologist who, who kind of has a slightly more complex view, but say, say there are four sources. The first thing is I cannot wait to change. So these are the things that we, you know, we long for. I can't wait for that holiday or I, I can't wait for that chocolate bar, whatever it is. We can't wait for the thing to come upon us. So that's the lightest form of change. Then we've got the, I know I have to change. So that, that might be when we go to the doctor and he says, look, smoking isn't good for your health. You know, you've got to give it up. You know you have to and you're in agreement with it, but it's actually quite difficult to change. And then the third change is, please don't make me change. So that's the anticipated change, which is negative. So that might be actually being told that actually new restrictions are coming into play and you can't go to school. You know they're for your benefit, but you don't want that change to take place. And then fourthly, there's what we call change shock. And change shock is when something really significant is just ripped from your grasp. And, and that, if you like, is bereavement with a capital B. So um, those four different sort of styles of change or experience of change are significant because even the positive change I cannot wait to change requires a level of bereavement if you like there's a there's a bereavement process so if I if I can't wait to change I'm changing jobs and I'm starting a new job I'm still actually needing to grieve the job that I've said goodbye to even if it's a job that I don't particularly enjoy um, the I know I have to change means that, like I, I know I'm positive about my health and well-being but actually, I don't want to let go of this thing that's detrimental to my well-being. So there's a grief there I have to say goodbye to. The please don't make me change is a very obvious grief, as in I really don't want to not see my friends for the next two or three months. And then the change shock 
is where we often find ourselves completely discombobulated by something which we never expected. And so I, 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 what I want to do is help people to understand that there is a massive frame of reference where, where grief and bereavement is concerned and that it's not something that should be reserved just for chain shock, but actually if we can understand or support ourselves and one another in the process of grief and loss as a, as a regular practice to our normal lives, we're actually more equipped when we're faced by very, very significant level three or level four change, as in the please don't make me change or the change shock. Mm. What, what, what I often find is that people um, edit out the fact that they have to acknowledge their losses in daily practice. And so when we do experience something really significant, we have got no experience of how to process the things that we've loved and lost. And ultimately, um, this sort of change denotes the fact that actually the, the deeper the grief, the greater the love. If we don't love, we don't grieve. Um, but when we love, we grieve. So if you're a person who loves deeply, you can expect to grieve deeply. Mm. But that grief is not something we should be running away from. It's not something we want to run towards either. But it's definitely something that we need to engage with. And, and, and this is a very, very significant time for us all in terms of grief and loss. Um, and acknowledging the changes that have been pressed upon us and taken from us um, helps us to realize how, how, how significant and important that process is. I, th I think that's a really helpful way of looking at it because <clears throat> I think we often will um, think of grief as a very narrow, someone has died. And like you said earlier, if you're experiencing any other type of loss or grief, you almost feel guilty because you always know there's someone who's in a worse situation. Whereas this way of looking at it being to do with change rather than bereavement, almost it, it, it validates what's, what you're feeling anyway. Yeah, and it helps us to relate because yeah. what, 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 you know, I support a lot of people who go through bereavement and one of, the, one of the terrors of bereavement is not just the bereavement itself, but it's the fact that so few people seem to understand bereavement. So when, when a person's being bereaved, they often say, as you, as you will have experienced as a pastor, they say, I just don't feel that anyone understands what I'm going through right now. And yeah. the, the, the challenge is that we've become so avoidant of loss and so avoidant of bereavement and grief as topics in our society that yeah. actually it's become something which which is the preserve now of just professionals. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that, and that's a great shame. In Southern European countries, they still wear black um, for a significant season after a, after a bereavement. And that's a very public statement of grief yeah. and loss. In, in our society, you know, as a priest, I'm obviously sadly involved in the funerals of many people. People will come to me like six weeks after losing a significant partner or friend or child even. And the expectation is that, Oh, that, that they should be back to normal. I mean, people are saying, are you still crying? You know, I mean, you've got to move on. You know, hold on a minute. I've just, I've just lost someone precious to me. I don't want to move on yet. But society, the pressure of society to edit out grief and loss is, is really huge. And, you know, we see that in, in our television programs, in our, you know, advertising, older people, people who are vulnerable, maybe discussions about being close to death. They, 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 they've been eradicated from our screens largely. The, norm, the normality of loss is eradicated from our screens. And, and the principle in every setting is you can have it all, all of the time and you don't need to let go of anything. 
um, yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's very yeah. challenging. I think the reality is a lot of us are scared of it. And so <clears throat> if, if we haven't experienced it ourselves and we know somebody who is experiencing grief, we almost, we're, we're scared to say the wrong thing. So then we don't say anything at all, which is 10 times worse. So, so if someone is dealing with say bereavement, what, what do they want to hear from their friends and family? What is the right thing to say? That's a really great question. Luke. I mean, before we get there, I would say that the fear that we have about grief and loss is not necessarily about the grief and loss, but it is about being out of control. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the fears that we carry are, are about being out of control in life. And there's this term change management. I mean, lot, I, I coach and do a lot of professional coaching and, and there's a lot of terms banded around around change management. And change management is a process that supports the illusion that we're in control of inexperienced events and unfelt feelings. So if you think it's a complete, it's, it's, it's a nothingness. How can you, change management is a nothingness. You could talk about loss management or grief management, as in how do I, how do I, how do I actually live out in the context of my losses? Change management is predictive and ultimately doesn't um, offer me very much. Yes, I can... I can predict what I might feel, but actually loss management or grief management is not about diminishing my grief or containing it. It's about actually giving voice to it. Um, with that in mind, what, what, what are we looking for when we manage grief or when we manage loss? Well, it's definitely not people trying to contain our experience. It's about community and actually communing with others is the best way to work out your grief. That's why Grief management is not a very good word because actually it's about expression of and communion within. You know, I find it it's interesting right now. Obviously, current restrictions say that six people can attend a wedding, but 30 people can still attend a funeral. And the reason for that is that we all know that actually grief is a collective experience, not an individual one. You know, if you want to if you want to find healing from your grief, you don't grieve alone. The reason we cry is not so that salt water can run out of our eyes it's so that other people can see our pain now if you think about the purpose of tears in and of themselves, they are absolutely fruitless there's no biological benefit to tears there's it's a remarkable function but it's an absolutely useless function in terms of it provides nothing for the body but if you think about it in communion it provides everything within community so I shed tears, not for my sake, I shed tears for the sake of others, so that they might commune with me in my grief and loss. And again, unfortunately, I don't want to stereotype, but British society is very, very nervous about tears. And I coach yeah. a lot of, of middle-aged, middle-class men, particularly, who have, you know, often they say to me things like, oh, I haven't cried since prep school, Will. And I'm like going, there's nothing to be proud of. That's a disaster. <laughs> Let's start crying. You know, because actually it's in our tears, tears that we share our pain. And, and I think, you know, obviously not wanting to go too radical with this, but, you know, I'm very concerned about men's mental health specifically and male suicide particularly. And I feel like this terrible congestion in male emotion around m grief and loss management is a significant problem in the development of, of depression and, and subsequent mental health disorder because actually we're not engaging with our losses and communing with one another 
in those losses. So, you know, that, that, that there's the value here, the significance here is in actually doing this together, being alongside one another. And, and what if we don't have safe people to do that with? Well, again, I mean, that is a really, really uh, key, key question. You know, how do we how do we do this alongside one another? I, I mean, I, I'm nervous of the word safe because uh, that, that has different connotations. If we say safe, there's obviously that's right. There's obviously safety and safety. So don't spend time with people who make you who might make you physically or emotionally uns, unsafe. But but it's fine. It's all good. This is this is change, this is this is change management in process. This is good example. When it comes to the emotions. What, what, what we need to be ready for is the fact that other people can be emotionally incompetent yet well-meaning. And, and, and again, I think the danger of the professionalised grief management model is that we have a society where we phone excellence, uh, excellent counsellors, like people like Cruz, fantastic sobs, are amazing. There's lots of brilliant outfits to help us with bereavement, but they're there to help us to be bereaved in community of others who are emotionally struggling. So yeah. it's easy to find offence where no, no offence is intended. And yeah. whilst we might be sensitive in our experience of grief and loss, it's really essential that we actually are able to absorb the bruises and bumps of trying to grieve collectively. It, that's better than grieving alone. And, and that's, again, that goes back to my first point, which is, we should be better at grieving our small losses together because in that training ground, we become equipped to be able to manage our major losses together. So if you've wept with me over the fact that Arsenal have lost again, <laughs> I'm much, much happier about grieving with you when my pet dog dies. Right. Because actually we, we've, we've wept over small things and now we're going to weep over big things. You know, the Christian motif, Jesus says, you know, you've been trusted with little and now you will be trusted with a lot. Now, in my mind, there's nothing more important to me than my losses. As in, there's nothing more precious than the memories of a grandparent I've lost or a friend I've lost. And therefore, of all the precious things that you could help me to manage, then um, that, is, that is where my treasure is. Forget money, forget power, forget influence. Yeah. If, if I'm going to share value with you, it's going to be on the basis of the precious things that I've held and lost. Yeah. Um, and that's why working this whole, you know, a, a culture of working through our, our losses together is a healthy culture. And, and so I guess what you're saying is it, it's better to risk saying something stupid and be wrong, but be there than to avoid the subject or seeing someone because you're worried you won't do a good enough job. Absolutely. And in, in, in many areas, I mean, mental health is my area of specialism. Um, I, I cannot tell you how many people make the fatal mistake of desperately trying to become, you know, a, a closet psychiatrist to help their friend who's depressed. Now, if, if, if the friend had a very complicated form of cancer, the other friend wouldn't like look up wiki and sort of find out about that. Okay. So this idea is that 
real loss cannot be managed beyond the extent to which we can ready our mindset for a transition and our heart for the squires. You know, there's no, there's no expertise that can assist us to feel less pain. Um, and so as a friend, we're not looking to become expert grief counsellors. Actually, that's not what's needed. Just as if the friend had cancer, you wouldn't try and become an expert cancer specialist by looking up great ideas okay. on, on the internet. You know, that's actually quite offensive. Um, what, what we need to be better at is being uncomfortable together. You know, people yeah. often say, well, you know, what's the right thing to say? There, there is often no thing to say. There is no right thing. And therefore the best thing to say is nothing at all. When, when, when you're counseling or supporting someone who's grieving, they don't want advice. They want someone to cry with. And mm. again, in our society, we, largely because we feel impotent and incompetent in these settings, that we try and drive a narrative that says, oh, I know I'm in control again. And, 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 and that's, that's the narrative we need to get away from. Understanding that grieving is a process, lo acknowledging loss is a process that begins with verbalizing our pain, you know, is a great place to start. So we need to go back to the small things again. You know, if, if imagine you had a minor prang in your car and you, you know, smashed a light in the supermarket, driving out of the supermarket, that's a classic error. So you, you come home and you know, you're a bit tearful and you say to your husband, I can't believe it, you know, I misjudged the way in on the supermarket, I've smashed the car light. If your husband immediately goes, well, we need to look up car lights right now on Halfords and we have to estimate exactly how much that's gonna cost for repair. And you know, let's try and go back and try and work out the angle of entry to that car parking space. You know, you'd be furious. Could be saying, look, I just, I've just crashed the car. I just need a bit of comfort right now. What you don't Stop need, is, that. <laughs> right, but what you don't need is expert opinion, and 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 that's a small loss. So in big losses, that's even more significant. We don't need expert opinion, and um, you know, in you know, in small ways in my life where I've experienced losses, um, it's been the friend who's come alongside and just said, "Hey, do you want to go fishing?" or "Hey, do you want to walk?" Um, they're the friends who are like, you know, let's talk about anything that, and everything, but not necessarily the thing I'm really grieving. But, but that, that hand on the shoulder and just saying, hey, I'm here for you if you ever want to talk about the specifics. That's so comforting. But God's created us, I believe, with these tear ducts so we can be with, so we can see one another's pain. And the clue is communion in the pain. Um, and, and COVID is really tough because the isolation that we're experiencing doubles down on the losses that we're experiencing. Mm. If, we, if we go back into the psychology again, my um, go-to gold standard hero is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a, a Swiss-American psychologist, and she, she worked in hospice care for 20 years. And um, she was an amazing woman, and she, she, she counseled and supported families who lost loved ones in, in pretty, pretty dire circumstances. And she developed what was called uh, the cycle of death and dying in her book on death and dying in 1969. And this has become known as the change curve. Um, and what, what Kubler-Ross identified was actually there was, there was a five-fold process to uh, grieving losses, losses of any kind. And the five stages of this. So firstly, denial. So th th there's initial impact and then denial. So this didn't happen. 
So if, if, if you like me are a priest who, you know, uh, deals with that first stage of death, uh, mm. people still speak in the first person and their loved one is still next door and in their mind very much alive, even though they've told you that they've actually passed away. So denial is the first natural experience and we shouldn't try and accelerate someone's denial. You know, often in losses, people say, oh, they're in denial, but we're not there to be agents of reality for people in that stage. Their, their mind is working at its own rate to bring reality to bear. Then there's anger. And again, very traditional British approach to anger is to kind of suppress, repress or deny. And actually, anger is significant. Raging against what we've experienced is significant and important. And in COVID times, you know, people get upset about the Twitter feeds and all of the rage and the protests. And I understand they're upset, but really what we're seeing is people who are struggling to adapt to loss, raging about the things that they've lost. These people are initially in denial. This isn't really happening or COVID doesn't even exist, we've heard. What is that? Well, it's psychological denial. Then we see people raging. What is it? Well, it's psychological anger. It's an expression of their deep woundedness and their experience of struggle in the face of loss. Then we have what's called bargaining, um, which is often, well, you know, if you do this, I'll do this. People often bargain with God. If you give, if you give my loved one back, I will become a missionary in China or, or I'll give all my money to the poor or I'll be a really good person, whatever it is. So then there's bargaining. And then, then there's often depression. And depression, again, is not ill health. Um, depression relating to losses, lot, lots of depressions are loss related and actually the, the, the nature of grief itself is exactly the same as the nature of depression. Just one has a clear locus and the other one not. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, if you, if you met someone who was deeply bereaved, they would manifest nearly all the same symptoms as someone who's depressed. Yeah. And then you go up into what's called acceptance or the psychological term is habituation when a loss has become if you like accommodated by the self, but there's no going back. You know, we're changed by our losses and mm. we're transformed by our losses. It's not about getting through grief, it's growing in grief. And mm. a key part of this is the idea that actually we're built to change and we, we grow and change and that our losses become part of us. They don't, they're not something we just get over. And mm. that's something we need to also avoid. You know, with COVID times, there's two sorts of people. They were the, we need to get back to normal. They're in the denial phase and want to get back to the start. And there's, we want to adopt the new normal. And that is like, I want to get to the finish. Mm. And our lives aren't neatly packaged like that between getting back to the start of what happened or getting to the future of what hasn't happened. We're actually called to live in the tension between the now and the not yet. Mm. And you know, I think it was week three of COVID when people said, I want to get back to normal. And someone else said, no, I want to get to the new normal. And I was okay. like, you know, people even wrote books about coronavirus over the summer. And, you know, I mean, that's like writing about the FA Cup final at half time. <laughs> You've got yeah. no idea. But, yeah. but all of that is distinctive and symbolic of the fact that we really struggle to grieve our losses. Yeah. And the danger is that no one's talking about this stuff. And we, we, we're fueling a fantasy that you can manage losses in advance of losing. Yeah. Well, it's just not true. And, and one of the really big elements um, of loss, particularly when, well, not necessarily particularly, but is 
anger and kind of dealing with the anger and sometimes this relates to bereavement but sometimes it could be a loss of a job or a relationship and where the loss or the change is unwanted how would you suggest someone deals with the anger that comes up either toward a person or a situation it's a great question and, and I, I'm always, you know, in, co in corporate settings, always reiterating the point that it, it's not about you. You know, just because it, it's directed at you, just because it's your name, just because it's pointed in your face, it doesn't mean it's actually about you. And you know, one of the things that we we, we tend to personalise uh, and catastrophize naturally. You know, these things become about us. So a friend is really angry and they suddenly have a massive go at us. Now we know that they've experienced a significant loss, but suddenly then we become really indignant with them. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that you had the audacity to tell me that or to say that I'm only trying to be kind. And you end up in this you know, horrible defensive place of them getting super wounded. Now what we're doing is doubling down on their loss. Now they've lost a friend as well as lost a job. Mm. Um, you know, it, 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 this is about where actually as a, as a community, we need to have high levels of empathy and recognizing that it's actually an honor when a friend rages against you. Because what they're demonstrating is that they believe that you are a safe enough person to carry some of their wounds. Now, if you, if you think about it, how do you want to live your life? Do you want to live it surface deep with loads of people who smile at you fakely? Or do you want to actually live your life with people who genuinely love you and genuinely believe that they can share how they really feel with you. I mean, I would rather three friends whom I can do the latter with than a million friends who I can do the former with. So when a person rages against you, when they express extreme anger in a period of grief and loss, what they're actually doing is saying, I, I, I really trust you and I'm really blessed by you and thank you for being near me right now. I need to, I need to express my frustration. Now, they might not be able to articulate why they're doing it. And they might not be able to say, I'm really sorry, this isn't really about you. This is about the fact that my, you know, I've, I've lost my job, for example. Mm. But you need, as the person who's trying to care, to hear that in, in their expression of anger. Um, you know, it, it, it's so difficult, but it's so important that you realise it's not about you. It's about them. And actually, they're complimenting you by expressing their anger towards you because they trust you. Yeah, and and that makes a lot of sense. Obviously there's boundaries, aren't there? So so uh, just just yeah, just for we my talked, we, yeah. we talked about safe people earlier. Yes. Safe people are people who are not abusive and controlling, yeah. uh, narcissistic, violent, uh, or sexually abusive. Yeah. And uh, grief and loss aren't an opportunity for people to breach boundaries. There's three, three sorts of boundary states. Independent, which is an unhealthy state of isolation. Codependent, which is an unhealthy state of integration. And interdependent, where someone identifies themselves with distinct boundaries, but are porous enough to engage with another. And a healthy state of being is interdependent. I know who I am and I know who you are, but we can co-relate. Mm. We're always working on that basis and where grief and loss is concerned boundaries can become a bit more blurry and it's tempting for people to become more codependent and therefore become quite uh, heavily attached sometimes that can feel very overwhelming 
or very independent, very isolated and insular, then that's very dangerous for them. Mm. So we need to be aware of boundaries in supporting people and where how easily boundaries can become inappropriate or unhealthy, but also always recognizing that that grief and loss are no excuse to cross the boundaries of abuse. Uh, and sometimes people's rage can turn into domestic violence of different kinds or, or, or violence uh, outside of a domestic circumstance. Uh, and sometimes people's losses can be manifest in sexual ways, in very unhelpful ways. So they seek comfort sexually for things that they've lost. And there's a very sort of primal, if you like, drive to comfort the self with kind of with by fulfilling sexual desire again very dangerous very unhelpful and so it's important to be aware of those dynamics but what we're talking about here when i'm saying when a friend is angry with you they might you know have a bolsh and have a shout and be upset and in that setting i'm saying in a safe setting know that that's okay try not to be too sensitive to that reality and as people come to terms with their loss they nearly always look back at the people who stood by them in that season and persisted. Mm. Now, ultimately, um, you know, you, you, you're called sometimes to sit down in the dust with a friend and just keep showing up. Um, yeah. And that, 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 that's, a, that's such a blessing. These things mm. aren't a one hit wonder. Um, it's about just keeping on showing up with someone and really seeing them come back to life as you invest in them. But it's, it's again, it's not rocket science and you don't need to be a coach or a psychologist or a psychiatrist to support people through loss and grief. Some of the, you know, the great questions are, you know, how are you doing? And um, you probably don't want to talk about it. But if you ever do, I'm here. And yeah. do you fancy a walk? Uh, those, are the, those are the three. Those are the three that you just, you know, put in your pocket. It's as simple as yeah. that. And that's, and those things anyone can say, you know, you don't need any training for that. All you need, like you say, all you need to do is just show up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to change topics slightly because I have a different type of question. And that is sometimes when change um, hits us, unwanted change, so say if someone loses a job, it can, I've heard people say, and I've experienced myself in the past, is that it's like, oh, well, I don't know who I am anymore. Who am I without my job? Or who am I without that person? And it's almost this kind of identity crisis that comes. How, how should someone process that and deal with that? Yeah, it's, it's a really helpful question. And you know, we, we, we have our identities complex. Um, and it's really important. We, we, we hear a lot of people say, well, you know, you don't have your identity all wrapped up in your work or your identity shouldn't be as a, you know, stay at home dad or it shouldn't be as a stay at home mom or it shouldn't, you know, whatever it is. I, I think people have in this celebritized culture got a very strong sense of identity, which is, which is really unhelpful. It's very sort of idealized and it's actually... You, you know, you've got sort of amazing, all of your gifts are realized, you know, you're amazingly creative, you've got a business empire, you're an amazing public speaker, you're highly qualified, you've got an amazing family, you know, and, and almost that's the picture of a really great identity. And I, and I just think it's a fallacy, There's, that doesn't exist. In real terms, our identity is expressed through different, very, very real uh, life connections. So, 
To my dad, I'm a son. To my sons, I'm a dad. To my wife, I'm a husband. Uh, to my friends, I'm hopefully a friend. To my congregation, I'm a priest. To my clients, I'm a coach. You know, the, the identities I carry are all by association. So I'm associated to others and to things and objects relations theory, mainly client says, you know, as I relate to others, I am, you know, in the sense that as I relate around me, I find my, my, myself, I find my being. As a Christian leader, I'd say that's true with God, object relations theory, in the sense of my identity is found in relationship with God, in association to God. Um, and for others, uh, maybe not a faith, that identity strongly related to profession or job. Um, and, you know, how we are living and our personal circumstance will determine how thick the chains are to a particular identity. And you know, if you imagine we're a boat bobbing around on the water, our anchor chains go down in different directions and hold us fast in a very fast moving society. And those anchor chains identify us. So I might have an anchor chain as a pastor and a priest and a coach and a father and a son and a husband and all those different chains identify me. But if I'm a single person and I have a strong career, maybe I imagine I'm a, I'm a doctor, for example, I might have a very thick chain to the medical profession. And that really is how I've identified myself because there aren't a huge amount of other chains going to, in other directions to harness who I am. Now, if that chain breaks, I'm, if you like, at, at sea emotionally, and I've got to re-stabilize myself in terms of my identity. How can we manage that? Well, preemptively, I'd say it's really important that we all explore our identity beyond our careers in, in advance of change. Yeah. If there is a sort of change management, it's associating ourselves more broadly than saying, don't put all of your emotional eggs in one basket. Don't depend entirely on one thing to define you and no one thing can define you. But, but, but actually, it's easy for me to say that, and it can be quite glib to say that. For younger people um, who are working these things out, it, it becomes clear over time. And sometimes for older people who've experienced multiple losses, they have to re-find an identity in a different stage of life, which is quite different to the identity they carried as a younger person. So these things are quite fluid. What, what, it is important not to catastrophize our identity. And, and by that, to say, I've lost my identity. And, and that's a phrase that we hear quite often. You know, I've lost my job, therefore I've lost my identity, which is the start, starting point of this, of this question. And actually, what, what we're doing here is we, we, we're basically saying, I am only as good as the job that I do. Now, I believe in innate belonging. That's, that means I believe everyone belongs. Mm -hmm. And I believe in every individual's innate value in the community within which they live. And that ex far exceeds their professional function. Now, I don't believe that we are robots in a machine but there were individuals created in the image of God for purposes that he's ordained for us in advance. And so your value in society, your value in relationship, your value in community is, is an anchor line as much as your role was in a particular profession or in a particular circumstance. And again, it's very difficult when that big anchor chain has been broken mm. um, to then suddenly go, oh, where's my identity now? That anchor chain is gone the best we can do is to make sure that there's lots of anchor chains in the water. So if one does break, we still feel rooted in the tides of life. Mm. But if we can think now about actually my, my identity beyond my job, 
is you know adults in the UK today have an on average seven different careers, um, which is quite significant. And therefore, that amount of change requires more than saying my identity is in my work mm. or my identity is in my relationship. Mm. And, and part of emotional health is acknowledging the, the part that you play in the lives of others beyond your immediate circle and spheres of influence. Yeah. And and you, you're a priest, obviously. So you obviously one of those um, one of your identities is kind of your relationship with God and who you believe God has made you to be. For, for anyone watching this who might be exploring faith or unsure what, what benefit there is of having um, a relationship with God, what would you say to that? Thanks, Lou. Yeah, I just pick you up on the one of my identities. It sounds a bit like a sort of slightly worrying, like... <laughs> True, <laughs> I said that badly. <laughs> Um, just, just to say something about identity integration is that um, the identity integration is around the idea that whilst I might have a number of different settings where I express myself in different ways, I'm ultimately the same person. Have I, have I, Lou, are you still there? I think you've frozen at your end. Yeah, oh. I am. Oh, you're still there. Sorry, it you've frozen. Me, I'm back. Right. Yeah, you're back. So uh, let me run that bit again. Um, so yeah. um, in terms of identity integration, I think that's really, really important. Whilst I've said that we have lots of different anchor chains in the water and we have, we have our identity is more than our work, it's really important that we, that we also experience identity integration. And that is that I'm not playing lots of different roles in society, as in I'm not acting parts. I'm actually living fully an expression of who I am in different ways and with different people so i'm the same person but the way that others experience me is slightly different that's the way i i work is that i'm the same person all the time but others experiencing experience me in slightly different ways so my client coaching clients see me as my their coach my congregation see me as a priest my wife sees me as Will, and um, so the, the way they're reacting to me is slightly different, but I'm ultimately all of my identities, if you like, are integrated in who I am, mm -hmm. and they are a bit like a facet of a gem. So if you take a diamond, you know, it's cut, say, 30 facets on a, on a small diamond. Every one of those facets reflect the light from the same diamond, but they mm -hmm. all reflect the light in a slightly different way, and they're all unique. And therefore, I would say each one of you watching this Zoom call right now, you're a diamond with multiple facets. And recognising the value of all of the facets on that diamond is about recognising your identity is more than just one side. Mm -hmm. And if you can see that, then when one side maybe gets blotted out, gets a bit murky because of loss, you can see all of the other ways in which you shine. And that also helps your self-esteem to recognise actually I'm not just valuable in this context, I'm valuable in all of these other contexts too. I, I think um, you asked me about my faith and how faith can help. You know, it, it's very hard to understand yourself, I think. You know, it's very, like, think about analysing your own brain. I can, if I, if I squidge my big toe, I can like, I can think about my big toe. But thinking about my own brain, that's really hard because I'm using the system that I'm using to evaluate myself uh, as the system I'm also trying to evaluate. So I'm running a computer to run a computer against itself. It's really confusing and difficult. But imagine someone objectively could 
enable you to know yourself, as in could look in and know all of you, um, and then could tell you about that, uh, and show you who you are, and show you the innate value that you really have. And that, that's, that's really significant to me, and that's what my relationship with God looks like. The thing as humans, you know, we, we're often blinded by parts of us. I'm blinded by parts of myself. And yet there's great revelation when you go back to the sort of maker's manual and sort of actually say, God, you know, you know me and you love me. And how do you understand? How do you see me? Mm. Uh, and, and, and what I've encountered in that relationship is a lot of people presume that God is a sort of wrathful, vengeful God who's generally displeased with people. But actually what I found is an amazing God of, of real love and compassion who, who who's very pleased with people and not displeased and actually longs for closer relationship with people and has means by which um, the broken relationship between man and God can be repaired. And so um, part of me, like knowing who I am is also knowing whose I am, knowing who I belong to ultimately. And for me, that's found in relationship with God. So um, I would encourage anyone who's listening to go on a bit of a journey in 2021 uh, and see whether there's a big anchor chain out there uh, that goes up to goes to God um, as much as it goes into other areas of life. And and how practically, when you've gone through times of loss or change, how practically has your faith supported you on a day to day basis, and to what extent has it? We talked earlier about being angry. And, um, you know, the safest person in my life to be angry with is God. Um, it sounds quite irreverent in a way. You know, people think, oh, you know, you've got to sort of go to God really quietly and meekly and sort of apologetically. But, you know, when I, when I really feel upset and angry and lost, I often make a big noise to God, sometimes shouting on a hillside somewhere, you know, into the heavens. And, and actually, there's a biblical precedent for that, you know, that actually there's lots of there's lots of expressions of like in the, if you read the Psalms, you see David like writing these massive great expressions of frustration to God. And, um, you know, there's a safe place, a loving father to go and, 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 and talk to and to work things through with. And I think, you know, what I found about God is he doesn't he doesn't supernaturally eradicate your losses. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he he grieves. Um, the shortest verse in the Bible yeah. is Jesus wept. And it's like one of the most powerful verses because Jesus is God incarnate in, in human physical form and, and he weeps and uh, he, he, he grieves. And I think I don't, I don't want to, you know, if I'm looking for a safe person to do loss and grief with, I, can, I, can, I know that I can do it with God because not only did yeah. God send Jesus to earth and Jesus experienced human grief, but God also sacrificed Jesus for our own sake. And he grieved Jesus as Jesus died on the cross. He, 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 he experienced separation from God. And so, you know, when, I, when I'm in that place of grief and loss and I want to be with someone who really understands it far more than I ever will, then spending time with God in prayer is super, super helpful. But, but it's not just directly dealing with God and knowing that God knows me and is comforting me. It's also being part of the church community. Yeah. where tear, tears are okay and actually lots of people are there and they've been through loads of losses of their own and there's you know they're not patronizing or kind of diminishing they're genuinely compassionate and concerned and and want to and want to just be alongside me 
And I'd say to any again, if you're if you're watching this and you're thinking, I need to be good enough for church, or I need to, you know, some people say to me, oh, I need to be sorted out for church, or Vicar, when I'm fixed, I'll come back. And I'm like, don't come back when you're fixed. Yeah. You know, this is a hospital for people who are hurting and wounded. It's not it's not some sort of, you know, place of perfection for wonderful worked out people. If you don't know where you are faith-wise, but you know you're hurting, I just would encourage you to get involved in your local church. Just go along and say, look, I don't know what faith looks like, but I'm just hurting right now. Can anybody help me? Um, God, God's ordained the church on earth to express his compassion and um, to show his love. And so, you know, if you've not tried it before and you're hurting, just go and test it out, see what they do. Yeah. pretty much guarantee you'll be surprised in a positive way and be like wow this is great I didn't know people cared this much yeah certainly been my experience too and lastly before we um finish and um go through our Q&A questions what um what else would you say to someone who is just really struggling right now with whatever loss or grief that might be what would your message be I would say that there's no time frame. And, um, you know, the reason it might sound like a strange thing to say in the scheme of all this, but we really need time to overcome grief and loss. And when I say overcome, I've already said that, it, it, you know, you're changed by it and you're not necessarily uh, through it, but you're, you know, your experience of it is different. And I, I think it, the sort of trying to move into an accelerated recovery from loss is really really unhelpful most of those um, here in London in the Chelsea and Westminster they've got these hospital revolving doors and I often when I visit people I often make the mistake of trying to push it to go more quickly and rather than letting you make it go more quickly it actually slows down to frustrate you it's really not and I often I'm the embarrassing person who presses it and everyone else <laughs> gets stuck and they sort of hit the glass and I would say to you that that grief and loss are a bit like those revolving doors you know when you're going through it you can only travel at the pace with which it's turning for you and if you try and push it actually it tends to slow down there's no there's no time limit to being in a state of grief i mean i, I would say if you are grieving four or five years later for something um you know then it's definitely time to get counseling um, because sometimes we can get stuck in grief, but, but, but trying to accelerate our recovery through the process is genuinely helpful. And, and the timeframes that I always help people with in terms of understanding is, is a catastrophic bereavement, as in the bereavement of someone in the order of life, as in a grandfather dying first, I would say it takes 18 months to grieve fully. Um, again, if it's, if it's a if it's a what I call a disordered grief, it, if it's the son dying rather than the grandfather, yeah. then it, you know it, it's a solid three year process. And grieving suicide is a five year process for anyone who might have encountered that as a as a minimum. And so I'm talking in terms of years, but I so often hear people talking in terms of weeks. Mm. You know, just because you're not crying every day does not mean you're not still grieving. And actually being gentle with one another as we go through the process of grief and loss is really, really important. And also acknowledging that we're going through multiple griefs at any one time of different magnitudes. And that sometimes one grief 
activates an older grief and wakes up something that we thought we'd resolved. The thing about Kubler-Ross's cycle of death and dying is it looks like it just goes that way. Yeah. But it's actually a bit of a roller coaster and it goes back that way too. So sometimes you find yourself just going over the hump of bargaining or into the slough of dis- despair and depression. And you just go backwards and forwards a few times. It's not just a linear progression. There's no bell curve of overcoming grief and loss. It's complicated, it's messy, and it goes in both directions at both times. But I would encourage you, if you're going through that process right now, why don't you pop on the internet and print off a copy, stick it on your fridge. And I often ask myself, where am I today? Yeah. I might say, where am I? And I'm like, and often I'm pointing to denial. (laughs) But sometimes I'm pointing to I'm angry right now with this, or I think I'm I think I'm I think I've accepted this, and you know asking ourselves those questions, being reminded of the fact that this is part of the human struggle. It's what it is to be alive. It's to loss. It's to grief. Yeah. Um. It's helpful. It's healthy. We might not want to actively remind ourselves of that reality, but if we do, we can guarantee we're going to grow. Such a good reminder to to have empathy for others even if we're not struggling with something right now given that it takes so long and given there are so many different types of loss and grief the the chances are the majority of people will be struggling with something at any given point and like you were saying earlier about you know people's outbursts I need to remember as well that you know people are struggling and grieving and it it's a good kind thing to have empathy first before anything else yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. thank you so much Will. Thanks, We've, uh, yeah. Our... I look forward to, yeah getting through the yeah. question great thank you okay, see you later i hope that you found that, that interview helpful I certainly did. Before we go to our q and I'm just going to mention a couple of things that we've got going on. The first one is we are running, we at Christchurch London are running a grief and loss support group, which is starting this Wednesday and it's going to run for four weeks and it's from 8 till 9pm. New space is left for that group. It's a closed group and it's an opportunity for you to come and share and process some of the loss or grief you may be facing so if you want to um, come to that or find out more there should be a slide that's up now with more information or you can go to crashlunchlondon.org and it will be there in the calendar the second thing i want to mention is a course that we run at christchurch called steps and steps is a 12-step recovery course and it's um, a way of finding freedom from life controlling habits. And the reason I'm mentioning it now is because that sometimes when we go through loss and grief, the enormity of the emotions that are coming up can lead us to um, find coping mechanisms that may not be entirely healthy. So, for example, Um, we could get into over-exercising or overeating, or we could get into controlling what's going on around us in other ways and in ways that we know deep down isn't healthy, but we can't quite get out of it. And steps is a course where we can come and it's, it's, it follows the 12 step process 
that um, they use in the Alcoholics Anonymous. So um, it's a course that we're running on Zoom and totally confidential course. So it's going to run for 12 weeks from the 24th of February. And we've actually got an introduction evening on the 10th of February in the evening, which you'd be so welcome to come to. You can come and just find out more and decide if you want to sign up or not. There's absolutely no pressure. But it's a course that I've done myself and I found so helpful. <clears throat> excuse me I've actually done it a few times because I find it so helpful so <clears throat> I would really recommend um, that course to you and there should be more information on the slide as well or you can go to christchurchlondon.org forward slash steps so um, on to our Q&A welcome Will Hi Luke, great to, great to see you. Thank you so much for the interview that you um, that we did the other day, but that's just been shown. It was so helpful. And um, we've had some questions come through. Um, just to go through them. Um, so, what are your go go to Bible verses passages when you're struggling with grief and loss? Um, well, that's a really good question. I think it's really it's it's. Uh, it's really key that people find their own way. And I always find the um, Psalms a great place to go when you're in emotional challenge or difficulty. Um, the ex-MP, um, uh, Jonathan Aitken, wrote a brilliant book called Psalms for People Under Pressure. And uh, that was a great exploration of life and struggle through the Psalms. He, he'd gone through a particularly difficult time, found himself in prison, uh, and then he'd become a Christian, and then he, he works through the Psalms. And there's some brilliant Psalms uh, on, on grief. Um, and, the, you know, I think, I, I think the, one of the key things about Bible verses around Psalms is that the stories of grief and grief recovery uh, are the best ones. Um, then actually, when you're going through grief, you don't necessarily want to... Um, hear teaching on grief so much as you want to walk with someone else's experience of grief uh, I, I love just you know i mentioned the verse jesus wept i think in our interview just the just jesus own grief over lazarus it, you know it's a really comforting passage because it really encourages us to to, to acknowledge that that actually grief is experienced in the divine um <laughs> you know, I, I think it's it's, it's amazing uh, that that Jesus Himself grieved, and and in that account in in John eleven, um, you know, you see this powerful passage, um, and Jesus, you know, he 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 he's right there, he's present there, and you know, he, you know, yes, it's it's there's a miraculous end here. But but actually, Jesus is emotionally present in the moment, and I think that that for me is, you know, hugely hugely encouraging and hugely comforting. So you know, I'd say, you know, there's no prescription in terms of what 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 you'll where you'll find comfort, but you'll certainly find comfort where you know God is, and actually God is with us in our grief. And I think David in the Psalms particularly is aware of that. Um, you know, I like Job, although Job is a complex book. You know, and uh, the comforters of Job aren't actually that helpful, but there's something about them getting down in the dirt with Job that I find kind of encouraging. You know, they come out with bad advice. And to be honest, lots of people who try and comfort people in grief come out with bad advice. But there's something really there's something about getting in being present with one another, which is where, where I mentioned the tears. And those passages are just supremely comforting. 
I also like the Emmaus Road story, if I'm honest as well. You know, in terms of, it's an odd grief story in a way, but I just like the way that Jesus walks alongside the two disciples and just chats to them. Mm. And, uh, they, you know, there's something again about that, about bringing the everyday in. When going through grief, you don't necessarily just want to talk about the grief. You want to just talk about the everyday. And I love the way Jesus walks and talks for a long time and sort of walks with them in their grief. And then there's this, you know, amazing revelation uh, that, that, that it's Jesus. But, you know, I, yeah, I think that they're, they're, ones, they're, they're the ones I love. But um, in, in, in the death of Lazarus story in John 11, it says, um, it just says in, in verse three, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And I think we've probably all been in that place of hearing that news of like someone we love is sick. And yeah, it's gut-wrenching. Uh, but that story weaves together both genuine loss, genuine grief, genuine compassion, and something that's genuinely miraculous. And and that's why for me, that's that's a passage of great encouragement. Mm, thanks for sharing that. Um, another question I've got relates to kind of where we are, are now in the pan pandemic. And at the moment, there's obviously limited numbers for funerals. What would you say to someone grieving who's not able to go to a funeral and and I guess how would you what would you suggest as like advice for how they can process that? Well, um, this has been one of the toughest things um, in, in, in the coronavirus pandemic, I think, and one of the most difficult things for people to experience. Losing a loved one is obviously absolutely catastrophic. But then not being able to actually encounter that grief fully is also emotionally catastrophic. That's why at the moment you can only have six people attending a wedding, but you can still have 30 people attending a funeral. So, you know, that that is a, um, a marker of a significant sign of how much more important emotionally grief is. Um, even then, you know, people say, well, the wedding's the most important day of their life. Actually, funerals, as hard as they are, really significant markers and a part of us as a community processing our grief and loss and unprocessed grief you know can become problematic for us it's also deeply painful but it can become emotionally problematic one of my friends is working as an itu consultant here in the chelsea and westminster and he said for him it's been catastrophically uh, hard to have to you know put an ipad in front of a dying person and, and have their family sort of say goodbye through the screen when he's used to people dying but he's used to working with the families to support them in their grief and there's much more first-hand contact so i think this is particularly difficult mm. um that said i think there's a couple of important points one is that a funeral is not the summation of our grief and in, in England, particularly, I think we have this idea, you know, you kind of go to the funeral and then when, then, then almost the wake follows straight away and, you, and you're happy and kind of cheery and it's like it's done. And I think that is a mistake. Actually, grief doesn't begin and end at a funeral. A funeral is an important transition for our grief, but it's not the entire transition for our grief. Mm. The, the, the key thing is to, in, to enable markers that are significant for you. So... For example, right now, I'd say to people who are unable to attend a funeral, um, it is totally conceivable to have a service of remembrance or an act of remembrance with a priest or pastor from your church at a later stage. Right. Uh, so if you can't attend a funeral now, 
it might be possible to, for example, go to a graveside with your priest or pastor, even your home group leader, and actually take some time to have an act of remembrance at the funeral site. That will, that will be a help. Yeah. If it's possible to uh, live stream a sermon, and I know this is happening in a number of crematoriums and, 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 and churches, you know, to actually watch an event online, it's not the same, but it's still significant. Mm. I think don't put your grief away in a box. I always encourage people to, you know, get photographs, um, to put photographs up rather than putting photographs down to actually really engage with the grief story and actually to talk about the person you've lost. And it's helpful to do that together. I talked about tears being for the other. And actually, if a friend dies, call a mutual friend and then talk about that friend. Mm. And my, my wife just lost a very dear friend quite recently during this coronavirus pandemic who's really quite young. And she was part of a book group with with, with four, four of them. We used to pray together and amazing, amazing, um, just sense of connection between them mm. and the comfort that they've experienced has been comfort they've experienced from one another mm. so that yes the funeral was significant but actually there's been incredible comfort by talking about the person that they love their friend who they loved and they've lost so mm. i think that's really significant so friendship uh, memories photographs um an act of remembrance at the at graveside or crematorium um and you know, sometimes it's helpful to remember particular moments, so someone's birthday or particular notable celebrations and get people back together. So there will be a time when that's possible. And I would say, if you've not been able to attend a funeral now, um, get people back together further down the track and say, actually, look, we're going to have a big lunch in memory of our friend, John, and um, I want to bring the best stories but the key, the key point I keep making is grieve together, don't grieve alone. Mm -hmm. And if you've missed the funeral, don't think you've missed the grief. And yes. also don't put your grief in a box. Thank you. That, that is really sound advice. Um, I've had another question um, where someone said that they've never grieved or sensed loss over their parents' death. Is it because they had sad experiences of childhood? Well, that's a question I definitely can't answer um, specifically for that person. And I would say it would probably be reckless of me to try and answer it just because the danger of presumption here is that, you know, you can sow seeds of disquiet in someone's heart. If I said, yes, that person might search for something that's not there. If I said no, I might give false reassurance that there isn't anything there. So I would say if you have those kind of concerns, I would definitely suggest that you spend time working with someone, potentially a counsellor, to explore what those early experiences might be. But just to reassure you, not everyone has a significant grief reaction to parental loss. I know it can be presumed, and, and this is one of the difficult things about grief and loss, is that you can feel guilty for not feeling more sad about losing a family member specifically. Yeah. So sometimes when life flows in order, particularly when there's an anticipated passing, you can be actually prepared. You can never be fully prepared for grief, but you can have done preemptive grieving in terms of how much you've habituated the, the loss that's coming. So a lot of people who have been working with a very elderly family member, potentially someone who was impacted by illness or disease, will come to a place of sorrow quite early on on the journey and then when that person dies yes they'll be sad but they'll often say things like 
well, it's actually a relief or I feel like it was a kindness. Now, that doesn't mitigate all of the loss, mm. but it's definitely not such a catastrophic impact to say losing someone younger or someone you're more deeply connected to at that particular time. If you don't feel a huge amount of deep sorrow, don't think you're a bad person. But equally, if you feel like you've never cried around loss, and if you've never felt any sadness, then it could be that there's three things we talk about, suppression, repression, and denial, that are kind of the enemies of the emotion. And some of us have got quite heavy lid on our emotions. And, and, and if you feel like you've never grieved or you've never been connected to loss, um, and you feel kind of emotionally constipated, I guess is the best way to describe it, then it's time to actually start talking to someone professionally and say, actually, I think some counselling would be helpful for me because I don't feel like I'm processing my emotions. Mm. Equally, there might be people watching who are who, who cry all the time and you know think because they're crying that that's weird. People have a different sort of emotional range. So if you cry a lot, that's fine. If you don't cry very much, that's also fine. We mustn't judge or trade off of one another emo one another's emotions. Mm. And equally, what tends to happen is that the non-criers look at the criers and think they're better than me, which sounds strange, but we all do that kind of comparative work. And actually, their just emotional range is slightly different to us. So mm. try not to panic, but if you feel emotionally constipated or you feel like you've never engaged with grief, then maybe talk to someone professionally. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> um, Got another question. What advice would you give to someone who is questioning life after death? Great question. I mean, I think it's a question that we should all we should all have, really. Yeah. Uh, is you know, if you're questioning life after death, you're doing great because questioning life after death is one of the most profound questions of living. Um, I think it was said of uh, the kind of great atheist Jean Paul Sartre here, who says he fears not death lies. Uh, so even people who have, have spent a lifetime trying to deny the spiritual aspects of life or an afterlife actually acknowledge that there's something disquieting about death, particularly what, about what we, might be after death. I think it's been one of the profound philosophical and religious questions for, 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 for generations, for millennia, probably for as long as humans have been alive. Mm. And I think that it's natural and significant to explore it. I think it's a great shame that more people don't spend time exploring what life after death might look like. I do think it's helpful to avoid stereotypes and assume that, you know, that God is sitting on a little fluffy cloud above us. You know, although that might be true, it's important to have curiosity about the afterlife. I think there's some actually interesting, not particularly wanting to promote Netflix, but there's a there's a, a popular trending a documentary on life after death on Netflix at the moment. Mm. I think exploring some of the mysterious stories of people who've had near-death experiences. My, my go-to where life after death is concerned is, is my Christian faith. It's actually saying, well, I, I, I believe in God. I have a sense of the presence of God, who I believe is beyond death. And the Christian story is that Jesus died and then rose again from death. And he made some pretty profound promises to people who followed him that they would experience life after death too. So, you know, my sense of the future is that life after death is something which I hope entirely to engage with. Some people have said, I think that that's pie in the sky. Uh, um, and that's their opinion. That's fine. But my, I, I think there's maybe pie in the sky when you die, but there's also cake on the plate while you wait. And I think <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sort of enjoying both sides of 
for what it is to have a relationship with God and also to look towards an eternal future. And I'd say, the, for me, I guess the most encouraging thing about life after death is not a blind hope, but a living hope. It's a sense that it feels like a straightforward transition if I know God now. So I would say explore faith, explore the Alpha course or Christianity Explored or whichever course uh, gives you an opportunity to ask serious questions about faith in your own church or a local church near you. Yeah, absolutely. Highly recommend the Alpha course. Um, this is quite a big one, so I guess it will, it will need a shortest answer and we're not going to do it justice. But um, say someone has lost someone to suicide, which is obviously devastating. Where would you signpost them for support? Are there any kind of high level things that you would say to, to someone? Yeah, who's... of course. Yeah, I mean, suicide is a really significant issue in this nation. Uh, about 4,800 men die by suicide every year and about half that number of women die by suicide every year. Suicide is the biggest killer of men uh, over the age, between the age of 21 and 50. Uh, it's more dangerous to men than cancer and heart disease and road traffic accidents. So we don't spend enough time talking about suicide. Um, there are different sorts of suicide. There is uh, what we call suicide ideation, that's thoughts around suicide. There's something called parasuicide, which is attempts uh, to take one's own life, but uh, with the, the hope of, if you like, being found or being rescued. And then there is suicide, which reaches completion. And I don't talk about committing suicide because that relates to a time when uh, when dying by suicide was a criminal act. But actually, we're talking now about dying by suicide. And mm -hmm. it's my belief that suicide is, if you like, the final stage of an illness. Yeah. Uh, no one ever takes their own life in sane mind. So what that means is no one actually takes their life objectively. If you like, suicide is the ultimate symptom of an emotional health disease. Yeah. And unfortunately, in the church and in society at large, that hasn't been understood. And so the history of dying by suicide has been clouded in a huge amount of shame, a huge amount of guilt, uh, and often some pretty unhealthy recriminations. Actually, people weren't even allowed to be buried inside the churchyard of churches, I think, until the late 1960s in this country, which shows you what a difficult experience people have had when it comes to grieving suicide because of the shame associated. Fortunately, things have significantly changed. And it's been a deep pain, but also an honour to me to have presided at a number of funerals for people who've died by suicide over the years. And what I've noted about suicides particularly is that whereas the grief cycle for what we call traditional normal pattern death is around 18 months, the grief pattern for suicide is more like five years. And unfortunately, when someone dies by suicide, the journey of grief recovery for people associated to that event is very significant painful and sometimes to a, to agree lifelong um what, what i would say is it's really important to grieve suicide well and there's a charity called sobs uh, which is a fantastic charity supports people grieved by suicide um and that is a charity which has got you know phenomenal association counseling support recommendations and anyone who, who who's lost a loved one's suicide i would recommend that they connect with sobs there's a brilliant book called Grieving Suicide by Albert Sue, and uh, you can find that on all good book providers and Amazon. Um, 
and, and that is again highly recommended. If you go to the MindSoulFoundation.org website, we've got quite a number of articles around around suicide, specifically grieving suicide, and and a lot of articles for Christians, particularly to help reframe the ex- sort of experience of grieving suicide from from a more informed perfect perspective without the stigma. Mm-hmm. I, I always find it notable that in in One Kings that that, that Elijah is crying out to the Lord. He's he's suicidal, the ideating. He's saying, "Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors." And he wants to die by suicide. You know, he wants to, he wants to die. And uh, rather than condemn him and kind of chastise him, the Lord feeds him and then causes him to sleep, and then feeds him again, and then causes him to sleep again before enabling him to continue his journey. Interestingly, in uh, in in secure psychiatric units. When someone is expressing suicidal ideation, they come in in a psychotic state. They're often fed, then given some sleeping tablets to help them sleep, then fed again, then given some sleeping tablets, you know, to help them sleep, and then and then they begin the work of recovery. But often, um, you know, I just I, I find that God treats Elijah with this biopsychosocial model, which is far from the condemnation that mm-hmm. Christians have associated with suicide. A question I've always asked is can my loved one who died by suicide go to heaven? And that's a question that causes a huge amount of pain to people who are concerned that, uh, you know, of what's happened to their loved one. And what I'd say is this, that the 99.9% of all people couldn't make it to confession or to confess their sins before they died. Um, it's a luxury that the last thing you ever did was to say sorry to God for the last mistake you made. But fortunately, our God is good and just and kind. And if someone dies, if you like, the symptom of this disease that causes uh, people to get to a state where suicide is the only apparent option for them, that's not something that is outside of the ability of God to forgive. Mm. And so um, I would just really encourage you to know that if your loved one loves the Lord and that was their final act, then you can be sure that they're with God in heaven. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we've we've talked about quite a lot of deep and um, heavy stuff this evening. If someone is in the place where they're just struggling right now, where would you signpost them to? Well, th- this is challenging because you know there is obviously there's a current time there is a huge amount of pressure on. The sort of services that might provide benefit, but I would say that for me, a go-to grief counselling service is, is Cruise, um, and their website is fantastic. I did two years of work within the Grenfell site uh, as part of a multidisciplinary team called the um, Healing Minds team, and we we, we really work closely with Cruise, and I was so impressed by the work that they did, and also by the depth and breadth of the resources that they had available. So if if you are looking for general resources around bereavement, grief and loss, I would really recommend Cruise to you. Um, if you are looking about, if you're thinking about exploring death specifically, uh, then I would encourage you, there's some death cafes um, which are run by a Christian organization, you can just search them on the web and they create forums where it's possible to talk about death, dying and also um, what, what, what what the future might hold. So it sounds a bit ominous, but death cafes, I'm not sure if they meet, I think they might be meeting virtually at the moment, but there's some, if you're interested in that kind of conversation, then that might be a place that you want to go. 
If you're struggling with bereavement yourself, um, I think one of the key things is to know that what you're going through is normal. And um, when I say normal, I don't mean it's normal, it's okay normal, but actually it's something that we, we will all go through at one stage or other in our lives. And if you're feeling emotionally destabilized by that, that is normal and to a level that is appropriate. If your grief becomes very, really catastrophic, so you're unable to really do anything, and you're crying a lot, you're not sleeping well, you're not eating well, and you're feeling really destabilized in your emotions, don't hesitate to speak to your GP. Sometimes people just need a little bit of extra help that might be in the form of some medications, potentially, uh, to enable you just to kind of calm your emotional system, your limbic system, enable you to restore your sleep, and just to kind of keep an eye on your emotional health. Doctors are really used to that, and actually that's really helpful. So if you see your GP, if you feel like actually your grief reaction has been really, really significant, then chat to your GP online. They're still doing consultations by, by, by the Zoom and other sort of facilitation, uh, not in person. And, and you can have a discussion with them, and that will be really helpful. And obviously, if you're part of a church, or even if you're not part of a church, have a chat with your pastor or your church leader, because actually most of us who are involved in church leadership have been involved in grief and loss counselling and support, and obviously in funerals and post-bereavement counselling for a significant amount of time. And we hopefully are a resource to you. Um, but, but in generality as well, don't forget that we are all experiencing grief and loss in, in the small G and a small L all of the time. Mm -hmm. And the greatest resource we have is the resource we have together is actually just talking about our feelings with our friends and family and not being embarrassed for the fact that we might feel low or tearful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your inputs and your answers. They were so helpful. Um, and thank you all for watching. It was um, great to have you with us. Um, just a reminder about the Grief and Loss Support Group, if you want to check that out on our website at Christchurch. We also run our courses and steps courses so do check them out thank you for watching and we hope to hear from you soon